Africa podcast and this has been the series where we've been interviewing entrepreneurs, doers and founders all over the world who have origins to Ghana who are doing amazing things and today we have another special guest with us who's going to be sharing their story of building one of the exciting sports marketing agencies in the UK. We're going to explore and bring into life what that life of creativity, what that genius looked like. Um, if you're excited like I am, I want us to give a huge round of applause to Kenny Anand Jonathan, who is the founder of The Mill Room. Kenny, how are you doing? I'm good. Thank you very much, man. And thank you for having me, man. That was an amazing introduction. So, uh, yeah, it's highly appreciated. Thank you so much. Yeah. So your journey into founding The Mill Room started from you eventually uh, finding your feet after school and going into the... But I say the creative industry as a graphic designer. Can you tell us about that, Jenny? Yeah, man. So it's a very long and extensive one, but that is actually originally where I started. I started off in fashion as well. Um, but just for the sake of obviously our conversation, um, what kind of led me into, you know, really kind of, I always say, falling into starting the mailroom is that when I had a fashion brand, um, a client of mine or a customer of mine, should I say, was uh, Wilfred Zaha. He's an Ivorian football player, plays for Crystal Palace over here. And um, at the time, he was at Manchester United. Um, and he, yeah, he just used to buy a lot of clothes and we became really good friends until one day, you know, after about a year of us really building a relationship, he asked me to help him to start his own clothing line. Um, you know, and I guess uh, when we came, when I, you know, me and him decided, you know, okay, we're going to pursue this thing um, to kind of leverage you know, our clothing line and get into the positions that we needed it to be in, um, I'd go with him to a lot of his, his his commercial meetings. So, you know, if he was going to have a meeting with a brand, I'd go along with him to have conversations to see what we can do to kind of bring the brand, our, our brand on board to give it more exposure. And I guess just one thing that I always notice is that in all of these big meetings, um, there was no one around. There was no representatives around. And I always thought it strange. It's like, you're going to have these big elaborate meetings about things that are going to impact your 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 career commercially, your image, everything, and nobody was around um, until one day. Obviously, I like business is my background anyway. So, until uh, one day we stepped into a meeting and they were saying a lot of great stuff. I think it sounded really amazing, but then when it came to you know, no one decided, no one wanted to talk about the money side, which is obviously also very important. So I kind of stepped in, kind of outside of my place, and I. I uh, when I had kind of asked them a few questions, um, they couldn't really answer the way that I, I needed them to answer. So I pulled Wolf outside and I said, look, what they're asking you to do is great. I think exposure wise, it's great. Uh, it, it's going to do a lot for you. But for the term that they want you for versus how much they're going to pay you, it's probably more of a slave deal than actually something that is going to help you progress in the long term. So not looking at things on the front end. Um, and just see more, you know, what benefits him in the long term. And I think after that, we kind of, he went anyway, he didn't end up taking the deal. We ended up having a few conversations. And then that's why I kind of came on as he's like PR, like his publicist or his commercial brand manager and helping him to kind of leverage his brand outside of the, the deals that he had already got. Um, so at the, yeah, in the beginning, it was only just an individual journey. I never actually sought out to have an agency 
but I guess you know the work that we was doing and you know at the, the the pace that we was moving, I think a lot of people started to you know really be attracted to what I was doing um, and what I was getting recommended. And in the beginning, I turned down a lot until I just realized this calling is probably a lot bigger than me. So I kind of put my pride aside and just decided to kind of build this thing out. Yeah. And and that's very exciting. So from what you're saying, the insight I'm getting is it's almost like how you need a lawyer to be in the room when you are you know, signing a contract. You want to make sure that you have somebody who's got your back. And that is what you feel like you can give to some of these sports talents. But what is even more exciting is that sports personalities and creative talents um, have become their own companies. They've become huge global celebrities and icons. And it's important that they have the ability to be able to leverage their brands into whatever um, business endeavors that they are going to to make sure it is profitable for them in the long run. That is what you're trying to do, if I understand you. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think in this in this day and age, like sports marketing and PR really has been the same for so many years. Um, the people who are behind the talent, really, if I'm honest with you, only see them, not all of them, but for the majority of the time, they just see them as commodities. They don't really see them mm-hmm. as human beings. And look, let's be honest, especially people that look like me and you, the people that are behind, you know, um, our people don't really understand who they are, where they come from, their tone of voice, because these are important. You know, mm-hmm. where you speak, how you speak, you know, the things that you take and you won't take, things that you tolerate and not tolerate. It's all about our backgrounds, right? And I think sometimes, you know, that, that due diligence of just being hyper-focused on the people that are in front of you, it's a new day and age. The sports media marketing and commercial partnerships have moved so fast. And now owning your own intellectual property for athletes is probably one of the biggest things. Rather than just selling it to a brand for peanuts, you understand you can go straight to your, your audience and how do you build off of that? But it takes a lot of work. And I think sometimes people are here for a lot of like the quick, the quick flip um, success stories rather than saying, okay, look, let's see what we can do to build this out over the next couple of years and see where it takes us by putting in our own money, you know, building our own teams and just seeing what we can do from there. I see a lot of parallels between that and what happens in the music industry. Do you also see that where some artists feel like they are going to be ripped off and then they have to go indie and by doing that, they feel like they're having more control of the creative experiences that they are creating, the intellectual property that they eventually own and that gives them more power of their of their creativity as well, so they can express freely when they want to, how they want to. Yeah, I guess between music and, and, and sports, there's definitely some similarities, but at the same time, they also are very different, I'd say. You know, like, people who are in the public eye, I like to say most of the time, like, people see them as, like, the modern-day superheroes, because it's not just about mm-hmm. entertainment. Like, you are changing people's lives through your story, your journey, Um and it's true. I think anywhere where money's being made, there's always going to be people that are going to um, exploit certain opportunities. Just the other day, we saw Usain Bolt had made an investment within in, in, with a, a private investment firm in Jamaica and $12 million has gone missing. It's mind-blowing, you know? And yeah. again, sometimes it's your team around you, also the athlete's job, obviously, to 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 be able to kind of like have hands and eyes on the ground that will look over all of your, your partnerships because the problem is like I said it's like you can walk around feeling like you know you've got this thing going on but the people that you know you're 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 putting your trust and hope in have other plans so you know I think being 
not necessarily just independent. It's not really because I think different things work for different people depending on what your setup is. There's no really a wrong way to do it, but it's just about having the understanding of the people that are in your first circle and how they are deployed to make sure that the entities around you uh, work for the better great of the of the talent. What is the evolution of the new sports person from a marketing perspective? How do sports people um, kind of brand themselves or curate a brand that excites the audiences? And what are some of the thinkings that you bring to um, sports personalities that you know, basically take their careers and their brands to a new level. Yeah. Well, first of all, I'd say like with the mailroom, we're, we're a boutique agency. I'll be honest with you. We don't really have a huge interest in on having everybody because I don't believe the lane is for everybody. I think everyone has the opportunity to do it. But like I said, it takes a specific type of person. Um, one, because you've got to understand the value in yourself and what we do. Long gone are the days that we just accept things because we need the money. Because it also speaks bad on us when, you know, the outside world is looking when we're attached to someone and nothing's happening. Because they be like, these are the people behind you, but nothing's nothing's kind of going on. I think in today's society now, when it comes to um, like sports marketing, PR and branding and the partnerships, is that a lot more of the power is in the talent's hands because there's a lot more outlets for expression. I'll give you an example. When there was a, an important piece of information that you ever wanted to break before, you would go to a news outlet to do it, right? And then what would happen is they would control the narrative. So you might want to break a story and you leave in a club or a bad experience you've had with a manager, for instance. You'd feed it to someone who is in media, but the problem is you don't have no control over the titles that they put. And they always use those kind of things for clickbait. But nowadays, if you want to tell a story, you go straight to your social media, <laughs> And it's unfiltered because you can speak how you want, the tone of voice, and you're going straight to the audience. It's not filtered through any any other channels. Um, and I think now the direct-to-consumer is, is is extremely important because, again, it's just about making sure that whatever you do and what you say is that it's authentic to you. And, that just, and I think brands are now also connecting with that, you know? Like, people can always... I think audiences now can sniff out when something is very ingenuine or or not authentic. So for me, it's just about being who you are and making sure that, you know, um, that is portrayed in the right way. Let's, let's take it back. Um, you started in the fashion industry. What was some of the insights in the fashion industry that led you to starting your own brand that was played out, I think, which is a hugely successful brand I think is thriving. Yeah. Yeah. yeah um, I guess it's just, again, it just started out as a passion and just trying to bridge a gap that you know that didn't really cater to people within my my age group I guess starts starts off like um you know how you have an interest in something you see things out there you're inspired like I grew up in the, the era of like Pharrell's Billionaires Boys Club which you can see a lot of like the tones from my collection in, in similarities it was just at the time from like a bathing ape and all of those other brands the price points were way too high I couldn't you know as 16 year old boy living in in the city of London, I couldn't afford a t-shirt that cost £150. <laughs> so what I done is I just created something that, that that fit a middle ground but had the same, you know, that that kind of allowed people to feel like there was a part of a community that could thrive in between maybe like core streetwear fashion and high-end premium. We just kind of filled that middle tier. 
So yeah, that's what I was doing um, for a number of years, man. And it's it's amazing because I, I believe like a lot of the skill sets that I have now, I learned on my journey because not only that, I started doing a lot of creative directing for a lot of the brands over in London, individuals. So I met a lot of people on my journey, man. So Playdot for me is like a huge part of my heart. And how did you decide to, you know, bring out the different collections? What was the thought process like? I understand you wanted to build something that was cheaper for people, but I believe one of the things that made Playdot very successful is the kind of designs. What were the inspirations coming from? Yeah, I guess uh, with, with, with that, this is so funny. I haven't been asked these questions in so long about the brand. Um, <laughs> yeah, I guess for me, the message about it was about self-expression. Again, um, you know, the character was based on emotions um, and it was about really about expressing who you are. So for me, I guess you draw inspiration from everyday life experiences, um, conversations that you have with with peers, um, your friends, uh, you know, it could be just relationships. And again, it was more about like wearing exactly your mood, but just allowing it to be expressed through clothing. Um, and that's just really is. That's why you see there's a lot of colours. Everything is kind of linked to some sort of mood and emotion or, or, or something that just allows you to express outwardly what is happening in, in, inward. So yeah, the life was just really my, my, my canvas. And how do you market that? And how do you bring that translation into people's lives so that they feel like really this is speaking to me how how, how are you marketing that to the youthful audiences yeah well for me again still in my life like everything for me is about storytelling i'm very very big on storytelling um to build a community you gotta be you gotta pe get people to trust you and um i think doing that in the most authentic way is about telling your story which aligns with the people that you want to align with so if, you know as i said like some of the struggles i, I had growing up as a you know, a young inner city London boy who's creative, but not having the finances, the resources, uh, we'd create very small stories around in video pieces. Um, at the, you know, before, you know, e-gaming and everything was in, we'd done a mood board, all, which was in the style of like 16-bit graphics. So it just looked like a video game, but it showed our whole collection. Yeah. So again, we're just talking to an audience that we felt that was, um, that fit, that aligned with us. As, as a creative person, how do you make sure that you are constantly in your creative juices and you have these constant ideas flowing? Uh, because it's difficult, right? It's because creativity really requires you to be reflective, but also think outside the board, try and bring a lot of nuances in the way people live their lives, but in a, in a certain different direction that they haven't, but obviously relates to them. How do you tap into that creative energy consistently? It's mm, a good one. Um... Well, I guess life is forever moving, you know, life is forever moving. And there's so much that happens that, 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 you know, where you're able to draw inspiration from, obviously you have drive, but you can have like, like your know, creative blocks at certain periods. Um, I guess what I was doing when I was a lot younger to now is very different. I travel more now globally, I guess. Mm -hmm. So they're new experiences. When I was younger, I was more about. Um, I was going out, I would be at events, I'd be at parties, I'd meet people within other people within the creative industry. So it always helped me to spark new ideas. But if I'm honest with you, ultimately, like my creativity comes from God because he is, for me, like my, our divine creator. Yeah. So, you know, just even yeah. just reading the Bible, my church has always been a big part of my life. So uh, reading the Bible and just understanding, you know, 
uh, the power of creation. There's so many stories, man. And I, I, I don't know, maybe I'm a, probably a lot more analytical than the people in my core circle. So I, I probably sit down and overthink a lot of things and I'm able to draw. Because I've got a, a creative mind, a reactive mind, sorry. So I can sit down and draw inspiration from so many different things. I'd look at a pen and be like, how this is designed or where the wood came from. And, you know, there's always a story behind something, you know. I One time I sat in a room, I'd like to give you something. I sat in a room, I had a random thought and I was speaking to my friends about new businesses and, and everyone wants all these crazy elaborate businesses to start. And I said to my friend, why don't you start like, you know, the importing and exporting of cardboard? They said, why on earth would I do that? I said, well, if you look around you, absolutely everything around us now would have started off in some sort of shipping container. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's just about, yeah. again, it's just the deeper thinking of, you know, everything has a start. Where does the journey lead you to? And everything yeah. in between and how you build that story out. It's just how my mind works, man. I, unfortunately, I can't switch it off, but it's helped me so far. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that something you believe that can be taught as well? Um, It's a good question. I think there's, there's, there's so many different factors that decide that. I think one is surroundings. Um, but I think taught to an extent, I think some of it comes naturally, but, uh, but I think taught to an extent. And the reason why I say to an extent is because it's about, like, for me, the amount of content I consume is pro is, is more than most people from documentaries to blogs, to autobiographies, to podcasts, to, you know, from animation, like I'm immersed in the world that I want to be in. So I'm always looking at certain things, which then helps me to to look deeper into certain things. So I believe to some degree, if yeah, if you if you really wanted to get into something, but again, I've probably got a bit more of a um, an addictive personality is the best way to say it. When I'm into something, I'm really into it. Um, so that's also something that helps me. So yeah, I think to some degree, it can probably be taught. Uh, let, let's go back to the fashion industry. You know, what are some of the changes that you see between when you started and now? Obviously, now you're not so much into the fashion industry, but I believe working with the sports personality still is going to be a lot of, you know, branding with your fashion and all of that. Mm -hmm. Do you see some difference, some progress in the good or positive light or probably, um, probably not so in the good light? Um, what are some of the changes that you've seen or the progress that has been made in the fashion industry yeah. from where you sit? Yeah, I mean... This is a very interesting one, actually. And I, even as I said, I don't do as much in the fashion industry as I used to. My eyes are always there. Um, okay, so a few things um, that I, I probably would, I would say is that before there was a bigger division between like core streetwear and high-end fashion. Um, <laughs> I think I liked that division, if I'm honest with you. Reason being is because when streetwear started, it was all about being able to be in control of stuff that, or, or sitting in rooms that, you know, the, the, you know, the, the mainstreams wouldn't allow us to sit in. So we just built our own platforms, our own yeah. blogs, you know, even the price points. Like I said, there were certain things like these young kids can't afford some of these, these, these luxury items. And cause we know that it brings like social acceptance. This sometimes not an excuse, but drives a lot of these younger kids to, to do things, to get money, just to fit into certain categories um or social um circles so for me what you see now is that over time what's happened is a lot of the high-end fashion brands have latched onto streetwear brands and kind of started to consume them whereby now you know i could buy a t-shirt for 
before 40, uh, 40 great British pounds. And now you're looking at a Christian Dior t-shirt with, you know, with, or Christian Dior and um, Jordan sh shoes, which are going to cost you probably about £3,000 at retail. But if you want them on the second hand market, it's going to cost you £10,000. I think what it's done is that like in this day and age is just, it's really divided. I think it's, it's, it's brought back the division again. But what I like is, you know, I go to, um, you know, I was, I was in Ghana, obviously for the, the TED talk and I went to like, you know, free the youth. Do you know what I mean? Which I think was, was dope. And then I went to surf Ghana and like, when I went to surf, for instance, that for me, even with free the youth felt like what it felt like for me those years ago, when I started streetwear fashion, it was about community it was about togetherness. It was about building your own platforms rather than just looking to the majors for support. Um, but again, that's just me as an individual. I'm not against anything, but that's just my personal take on it. It's like where I come from is more about, you know, the the, the togetherness because it, it's, it's our identity. You know, it's no problem with buying, you know, nice luxury items here and there, but we understand that is not what makes us. It is a reward for the success that we have in all we do. But they don't build community. It builds a platform for the 1% of the 1%, <laughs> which most people can't sit in the, at, at those tables, you know? So, so yeah, I think that's just kind of it for me. I, I like your reflection on, like, really what fashion is about. And maybe I'd like you to speak a little more around that. If yeah. you reflect on your journey, what do you think is that one thing that you brought into the fashion community to play that that? it's going to continue to resonate with people or at least inspire people to take on that journey. And like in the grander scheme of things, what do you think is the purpose of fashion? Mm. Well, I'll even put it like this, right? What I do now in, in, in with the mailroom and sports marketing, well, let's just say marketing across the board and in fashion actually is not very, not very different. And I try to explain this to someone. Reason being is because, you know, the product is just different. One was fashion, the other is people, right? And when you look, like like I was saying, it's like, for instance, when in, with the Mel Real Sports Marketing, the division between high-profile athletes and their communities has always been very far-stretched because, again, people behind it have always tried to keep it within their realm because they know it's very high value, right? So even though the athletes sometimes might be into a lot of the things that cater to the market that where they've originally come from, they are purposely kept away. But for me, when I'm representing these people, what I do is say, no, this is your niche. We just, if we're going to connect with them, you just need to do it in a way that fits you and fits them. Same thing within fashion. It was, I provided for my community, speaking um, a desired language that, you know, I guess fit across the board between high-end fashion, um, you know, mid-range fashion, and then in streetwear. It's just about building community and everything you do. Yeah. Now let's come back to the mirror room and what you're doing there. Do you work with so-called established uh, sports people or you like to grow with people along the journey? And which is your strategy and why? Yeah. Um, well, at the moment, it's established um, and we haven't gotten highly into the grassroots, but it is definitely one of the big things on my agenda. Reason being is because 
unfortunately, even though our core values is here, we got somewhere to start. And in order to do what we need to do, we need we do need to generate money. We can't forget that. And I think the hard thing is, like I said, just because someone plays top flight sports doesn't always mean that they, they can generate money off of their likeness. So unfortunately, some of the lower leagues, there's no money in it. So what we try to do is for most of the high profile talent that we got, I would take some of the, the you know, the the funds that we have or we generate from them and then we will just kind of maybe like use that to kind of help someone at a lower level whereby we know they can't, you know, they can't pay off what we would probably need from them, but we believe in them enough to say, okay, we're going to invest in you for the long term and we know we can probably reap something later on down the line. So I, can, I, I guess that's probably our strategy at the moment in trying to balance the two. And who are some of the people you're working with now and, and what are some of the exciting progress that you've been able to make? Yeah, so I guess my first client was Wilfred Zahar, as I said. He started, um, he played for Crystal Palace. Um, well, he still plays for Crystal Palace, should I say, sorry. Um, uh, Mikel Antonio, who's uh, at West Ham. Um, Leo Bailey as well, who we were previously working with. He's at um, Aston Villa. Um, Aaron Wan-Bissaka, who was at Manchester United. Then in boxing, we look after Joshua Boatsi. Um, if you want to say a bear, Joshua um, Boatsi. Um, a Ghanaian boxer as well so um, very exciting prospect and then athletics as well so um, OJ Odebore Team GB 100 meter sprinter and Daryl Nita and we also look after um, uh, Daniel Carter who plays for Brighton she used to play for Arsenal so you know I, I think we, we white label for a lot of other agencies in, in terms of like helping them with their talent but exclusively um, they're the main guys that we work with and also also Jan Vadery who um, was at Southampton and plays for Alger now. So, but but in terms of project, there's always because, like I said, this program is not a one size fits all. Everyone has, you know, their own key characteristics. So I could tell you, Joshua Boatsy, you know, we're, we're planning on building a boxing gym in Ghana, in in, in Bookham, Jamestown. I think what we can do there in terms of like really building out not just boxing but the sports community within Ghana is massive. And especially, you know, if he goes up for a world title fight this year, how do we do, how do we bring that back home? And we should be having world title fights back home. Wilfred Zaha and his foundation, he gives 10% of all of his earnings since he started back to, you know, his hometown in Ivory Coast. He has an orphanage and a foundation which helps uh, widows back home. Do you know what I mean? So what he does there, um, that, um, Danielle Carter, female footballer, what she does is, um, how the whole thing is about um, menstrual hygiene and how women are affected, you know, through, you know, their playing careers and how their bodies affect their playing careers. So I mean, she's very vocal about that. Look, I think everyone, we got so many, honestly, there's, there's so many exciting projects going on. It'll be hard for me to list absolutely everyone. But we take on, you know, these people because they have a voice and they're, they're happy to use it. They trust us to assist them in their journeys to kind of push their messages forward. That's brilliant. And that's very inspirational. And actually that leads me to the next part of the conversation, which is about the impact that these people are making, but also back home. Like you are a black person, you are originally from Ghana. Yeah. Um, how are we trying to bring say some of these um great experiences of sports marketing back home? Or how are we trying to link the impact of sports personalities and the community that they have communities? Because we know that sports 
while it has a huge, massive audience in, in Africa, it's yet to be developed like it has been globally. And what are some of the learnings that can be brought back home to, to make that impact? Yeah, well, look, I think the continent's got so much going on. Just the other day, you know, NBA, Africa was, was in Ghana. You know, you know uh, um, we actually interviewed the president of um, Ball on the podcast, so. There you go. Do you know what I mean? And I think this is, you know, this is the amazing thing, you know. I, like, I look at Ghana, for instance, right? There's a stat, and it's weird because most people don't know this. Ghana holds the most amount of boxing world champions across all divisions in history. That's a crazy stat. But, you know, we know that, you know, Jamestown Bookholm has, you know, all these great, great boxing gyms, but on a global scale, no one recognizes, even in the country sometimes, you know, it's just seen as, okay, it's just softer. Yeah. 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 You know, it's just something that happens. But there's so much stories to tell, but then there's a lot we know of back-end work, you know, so it's not just, we understand the commercial side, but there's the education and health and safety around sports and, bo- and, and boxing. There is, you know, uh, how do people generate money from it? How do people get paid from it? There's the media side to it. And then it's the exposure. Do we have the right channels, avenues and people going back in and putting money into it? And that's something I feel very passionate about. Now, even if we go to football, which is which is very big in Ghana, really outside of the, the Black Star event, it's what happened. Like, what is, what is it? So, yeah, yeah. So it's like, we've got a lot of work to do. And I think sometimes you need people to be those sacrificial lambs in saying, I'm going to be the first adopter, maybe on 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 a scale where we can say, I'm going to take it and say, how do we bring the attention back to the continent? I, I feel very passionate about this, if I'm honest with you, especially during my last trip, had a lot of good conversations, but it starts with the individuals. But again, you need the right people in the right places to tie everything together. I've got, I, I, you know, I'm fortunate enough to, you know, do you know relatively okay in, in the field that I'm in to to say okay I know people over there like Tariq Lati and plays for Ghana he had the opportunity to play for England he turned it down and goes to play for Ghana but he has his own academy in Ghana how do we make that a big thing <laughs> do you know what I mean where we can we open up the floodgates where people from around the world can come we're doing again if we're doing boxing events down in at the, at the, at the boxing arena how do we get Anthony Joshua and Dylan White and Deontay Wilder and the Tyson Furies front row. Not only just that, but the entertainers and musicians. Because now we have Afro Cella, we have Afro Nation, and it's amazing. But now we, I think, the sports community really needs to build up because it's a great place for traveling tourism. It's even better when it comes to bringing capital into the country. And it's it, again, it's it's it's, it's inspiring, man. I went to the uh, a boxing event last June, right? I kid you not. No exaggeration, yeah? They're the best sports event I've ever been to. Ever been to. And I've been to a lot. <laughs> like, I'm talking... Yeah, I'm, I'm talking the atmosphere, the people performing. There are performances over in London when people are perf- Like, the crowd was jumping. Like, London is very conservative. Everyone wants to sit, sit to himself and drink beer. But I ain't going on. Like, they was having the best time of their lives. And I said to myself... I don't even really want to go to another event if it's not like this, you know? So, man, look, you can hear it. I'm, I'm excited about this, man. And, I, you know, I'm ignorant to the fact there's a lot of work to do, but I just definitely want to know, I know that I want to be part of the change that needs that needs to happen. We can all the excitement that you felt coming back to Ghana, uh, witnessing the very vibrant sports scene that we have here. What are some of the actionable plans that you have in place to 
tapping into the opportunity that exists and building the sports community here. I mean, excited about all the things that you said about boxing, for example. What are some of the things that you're thinking that is possible to be done? Well, um, I think first of all, I don't want to ever feel like I'm coming into somewhere to take. Um, that's we'll just end up being part of the problem. Like this is very genuine. So what happens is I feel like some people see things, they get these really great ideas and they forget the people that actually matter. But I think you've got to start from the ground up. Don't think this is a year project, a two, three, four year project. It's going to be something over a very long period of time. But what you've got to do is start at the, at the roots. You know, before we even start looking at trying to get, you know, you know, governing bodies and people high up involved, you've got to sit with the people. What do they need? Not even just the football federation, the people that are playing in the local parks. What do they need? You know, the people at the boxing gyms in, in Jamestown, what do they need? Is it equipment, facilities? Is it finances to help them to bring in sponsors? I had a conversation the other day. They said there's not enough com um, competitions. So for me, it starts there. Um, and just because of the sake of the conversation, one of the main things is that um, um, Boatia has started his own foundation. And the foundation, again, is about health and safety around um, uh, boxing um, and making sure that we can get the right resources to the gyms in the surrounding areas and starting from there. What can we do? And then, you know, we have media teams where we're going to be setting up training days and caps that we can we can start to do, uh, you know, and hopefully we want to start taking that international. I guess the lot, for the sake of the conversation, the long-term plan really is about saying from the grassroots, and from the rest of the world, how do we then tie in both of them? How do we draw more eyes in, um, to Ghana or into the continent to bring those people in and say, we need to invest here because there's a pool of people here that if given the right opportunity, they can make something for themselves and build out, you know, this this community even on, on, on a bigger scale. So for me, it's just about getting our hands dirty um, and sitting with the people and making sure that you know they felt they feel, they feel loved and needed, and they can see genuinely that we want to help, and that goes for for most sports, not just as they're not just boxing, um, but we have started having very light conversations with people a bit higher up, um, and expressing our interests and just saying, look, man, there's there's a lot here that you know that, that's being missed, um, and even for them, what what is it that you feel that you need from us that we can bring? So it's, again, it's just about having started and having very honest conversations um, and investing back into the country. And this is where, um, you know, building a boxing gym loss stands as well. You know, we're looking at bringing money back into the country. What we can do is when people are having their training camps, they need somewhere that they can go and train that has all of the state of the, our, our equipment. But it's not only just about those people. Again, we can do training camps for the coaches locally at the facilities. We can do training camps for a lot of the the youth or the, the up-and-coming professionals in the community there and we can just tap in and tap out so um i think in the immediate term it's just that we need to sit with the people and make sure that you know the, the ones on the ground that are really doing it that is their life and they sacrifice everything for the community we are listening to them and, and and hearing what they need and seeing what we can do to assist them that's brilliant um and what do you see about um the diaspora coming back home and the opportunity that I can bring to the continent in general. And obviously that's beyond sports or what you're yeah. doing. But because you've been able to interact with people coming back, maybe your friends in the UK or friends somewhere in the world, what do you think is the general feeling around coming back home? And what was your personal experience in coming back home? 
and, and the connection that you have to this place. And that has, you know, motivated you, inspired you to want to give back. Well, I guess, you know, like previous to coming back in June and then back in December last year, I actually hadn't been to Ghana for about 10 years. I mean, that's just because of work, family, life has moved so much. I've, my, I've been chasing work for so long and it's actually work that brought me back to Ghana. <laughs> um, I think, you know, um, one of the things is that I, I see what's happening within the community has changed dramatically and I love it. I honestly do. I don't know a party go up, but you know, December, everyone comes, they want a party, which is great. Um, but there's so much more to go on than just party. You know, that's just what I say. Take it for what it is, but understand this is a land of opportunity. Um, but don't come, as I said, don't just come and take. You have to have a real understanding for what it is that you're trying to do, but make sure that what you're doing, you add value. My family are from Teshinunga, yeah? So, like, for instance, like, so we're gone, but, like, my grandma or my family own, um, uh, like, a, a nursery out there. So even that, you know, the, the, the community aspect to it has always been ingrained in me because I've always grown up with my grandma having this nursery um, and building it out. Um, so I think when people come back, look with fresh eyes and say, rather than what you can just gain, look and see what you can give back. And I think in anything where you have good intentions, there will always be a financial gain somewhere down the line. So I don't tend to focus on the money that can be made. I really focus on um, the impact that it has. Um, someone asked me, you know, when I was explaining someone about the boxing gym, they said to me, but, you know, in here, there's not much money in Ghana or this kind of thing. And I said, look, I think you're missing everything I'm saying. That this is not even, my aim, if I'm totally honest with you, is not to come and say I want to make £100,000 off of this gym. <laughs> it's about what we can do to service the community. And I think, as I said, once we do that, we can find other ways for it to be funded. We don't look for money from the locals. We say, what do we do to build out what is there? And then that conversation happens down the line. It's an investment in in, in our people. Do you know what I mean? You know, I, I, I was fortunate enough to, you know, I guess, which some people don't have. I was born in London. My mum was born in Ghana. But, um, you know, understanding my privilege, I know that when I go back, I have to be very cautious with how things that come very natural to me, how you display them when you're there, you know. So just look for the opportunities and what you can do to help. And I believe businesses can be made out of that. Yeah. And what what do you think about the Year for 10 project that has been um, very successful that has brought other people back into Ghana? And what are, what are some of the things that you believe like other um, countries can learn about? And we are obviously a marketing person, what are some of the things that have been done right? And so the things that you, you, you really inspired by around the whole initiative around like the call back to, to Ghana, but more largely the call back to Africa for the diaspora mm-hmm. community. Yeah. I think the year of the return is amazing. I think what it done is it refocused the eyes back on Ghana and not just Ghana, the continent, because you're always going to get like, you know, the kickoff effect into other areas. But what it done is made people realize that, you know, we don't live in mud huts. Like, unfortunately, there's this, you know, there's this ignorant culture, which still the narrative is being pushed that, you know, there is not richness of life in Ghana. And then anywhere in the world, obviously, we understand in sometimes more places than others that there is richness in, in life. And then there is extreme poverty. The only difference is, I guess, in places like in, 
you know, where we, where we come from in Ghana is that there's no real middle line. It's either the super wealthy or the people who might not have as much or, 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 or don't have. So I think the year of return, what it's done is it's allowed more eyes to, um, to come back and focus on Ghana, which I think is great, which then spill over to other uh, parts of the continent. But again, one thing I'm extremely conscious of is making Ghana a party country. Um, I think what we do is we use that avenue to bring eyes onto it and then we present people with, look, this is everything that we do. Do you know what I mean? Down to cocoa, to fine art, to tourism. Like, I, I love the art community at, at the moment in Ghana. I think it's beautiful. Like, you know, the food that we have, the places that you can go, you know, um, and just keeping that alive, man. I think, you know, what they're doing is great, but... um. It's going to take time. I, I think everything's going to take time. I don't have an immediate answer. Um, but I see the direction it's going. And it's, you know, maybe that even might subconsciously be one of the reasons that made me even say, okay, let's do it. You know, like, it just it just puts the battery in your back, man. So I, I love what's going on. I want to be part of it. So Yeah. And back to your founding journey, I mean, there are a lot of difficult times for a founder, you know, launching projects, all of that. You've shared some lights around all the darkest times in, in your founding journey. Do you want to talk about the difficulties that have come with becoming a founder um, and more particularly becoming a you know, black founder, working with these um, high profile personalities? Yeah. Um, I guess some of the trouble is one capital, like money. Um, you know, about to do, you have to take on a lot of things that in the beginning where you don't have money just to make money. Um, but I don't, I don't regret them because I, I believe they helped me to build character. I don't, I know it sounds cliche, but they helped me to build character. They helped me to understand who I am and, you know, and learn. I didn't go through higher education. I didn't go to university. So I learned by being on the job, you know, I learned by getting into the field and making mistakes. Uh, and through that, my love for people and attention to detail have put me in positions and conversations where people trust me because I've shown and proved who I am. Um, I think the other side is that really, like I said, anywhere there's money, there's going to be the powers that be and not always going to want you to to, to to move around in those spaces. Um, I think, you know, I'm 33 years of age and what happens is sometimes a lot of the people, well, no, I think sports management historically is traditionally like middle-aged white guys right that can control a lot of narrative and sometimes you look at someone like myself and they think who's this who's this young black guy he probably looks like the athletes what value do you have or well, they just don't take you seriously and i used to take it very offensive like i used to be like very offended by it but if i'm honest with you i use it to my advantage because what they don't see coming will hit them 10 times harder because when they think that i'm not a threat but they sit down in a room with me and an opportunity even though that was meant for them who's on my lap now because of their ignorance, more power to us. I understand uh, my value. And um, now you, you just realize that, you know, the skill sets that we have growing up um, in life and sometimes the hands that we are dealt have made us into the people that we are. But the difficulties, bro, is, is one definitely, I'm not going to say I've suffered racism, but is your skin color. Like the silent issues of, of being a young black person um, operating at a high level is not always welcome. Um, and then the other side of it is that, you know, 
trying to raise money. I, 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 well, I didn't raise money. I still 100% invest in the business myself. The everything you see, my staff, I have three, four, four, four full-time staff. We use a lot of um, third parties as well, like content creators, and I have to fund it. So that is also a big challenge for me. So it might generate a lot, but the output is, is equally as high. <laughs> Yeah, when, I, mean, I like how you're vulnerably sharing these difficulties because I think the idea is, you know, most people when they see founders thriving, uh, the idea is that people might be needed from boy and lives, but, you know. So as someone who has ventured into entrepreneurship uh, myself, I, I'm very happy that you are telling people the reality of the truth, uh, especially about you being self-founding, uh, entrepreneur, uh, bootstrapping entrepreneur, because uh, a lot of people do not find that it's exciting because you don't get into the highlights of raising a million dollars or multiple million dollars. But um, that's also a great part, and, and I'm happy that you're taking that. Um, um, do you want to tell us about the next evolution of the Melbourne Road and the, the exciting things that you're planning for the future? Yeah, I guess, um, no, for sure. I think. The next evolution really is, as I said, we want to be very specific with who we work with because they represent us, we represent them. Uh, and to make the impact, I believe, as I said, it takes a specific type of person that understands the value or the powers that they have. Um, or if they don't, uh, you know, it's our job to kind of let them know that they're doing certain things organically. Uh, but it's got to be a self-want. So we want to really tie, tighten up on the kind of people that we represent. Also, the evolution is the brands. So we have the, the, the market inside. We work on behalf of a lot of brands that might be Nike, Puma, Adidas, a lot of the media outlets out here like The Zone, BT Sports, Sky Sports, you name it, we work with a lot of them. So the media arm and production. So I have a production company also, which is called Transmission. And um, the whole story behind that is really the state of transmission is about power being passed from one vehicle to another. And it is about us being able to retain our narrative and our power and taking it back from the people that had it before us. So it's about storytelling. It's about being authentic to who you are and working with people that want to work with us because we share the same values. Uh, so the production side for us and the documentary side of us is, is, is a big part of the next stage of what we do, uh, which comes alongside with um, a media platform also, um, again, because Sometimes we're out there searching for places to tell the world the stories that we tell. We need the, we need homes for them to live. And unfortunately, not everyone's going to understand the values of what we're doing. So rather than going and asking and begging for handouts, what do we do? We create our own. So, um, you know, that's just a big part of who I am. Um, I think they're, they're the main things. As I said, each one of our athletes and us, we have big um, conversations that we're, that we're ready to have. But I think one of the big ones is that we just signed a partnership with Getty Images, which is that what the world's biggest um, content hub. And basically what it is about actually telling black stories black, through black history. There's um, over 40,000 images, um, which is still being added to day daily of black history. Images that have never been seen by society before. Um, they've given us the privilege to use these content and partnership with them to tell stories within areas that we feel our fit. So we started our first project last year. The second part of it will will will, will launch this year, um, actually within the first quarter. Uh, and I think it's just a, a great way again to to tie in everything that we're doing and express who we are to to the right audiences. 
And that's very inspirational stuff. And, and I'm just wondering when some of these storytelling would, would reach the continent because um, the African continent does need a lot of our stories to be told to the world. And I've been taught about it. I've been taught doing it in a documentary. Um, I know, for example, there's a young lady, if, I, if I'm getting it, Priscilla. right? Priscilla Wusu, there's um, a mm. yeah, documentary. Are you thinking about stuff like that? For the sports communities, boxing communities, that will be very inspirational. 100%. Actually, Priscilla is a great friend of mine. He actually works with us. So, um, and, uh, you know, we was even having this conversation. Actually, yeah, we, we was talking about something. So we was, we was having a conversation probably about four days ago, three days ago. And I was talking to her about the documentary and saying, look, sometimes if you put something out there, you know, it doesn't receive everything that it needs in the beginning. But once time goes on and then there's a use case for it, that documentary will swing back because I use it as a case study. So, yes. We have documentaries that are, are, are ready to come out. Me and Priscilla have been speaking about some work that we want to do together. Um, but now it's just about 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 getting these things done. As I said, there's so many great people that are doing some amazing things. Um, and we just want to be able to collaborate, man. That's it. I think that's the power of everything. You know, Nomad is an island and you need people that are around you within your village to kind of help you. To be, you know, where you can't reach, they can be your hands. Where you can't see, they can be your eyes. And where you can't go, they can be your feet. And I think working with people in that capacity makes work not only fun, makes it easier. And it just helps to build to the story and the network that we're trying to, to build. So, so yeah, for sure. Definitely. Uh, I, I like a lot of the insight and wisdom you shared. So I am tempted to ask you that if you reflect deeply about your life, what, what do you think is one thing or a couple of characteristics that have made you thrive and succeed in, in the things that you do it will be a great ending note um, for the podcast. Well, I'll be I'll be very honest and I, I don't think I've ever really shared this with somebody. Something I think about, I share it with my, my, my sisters and my wife. But um, for me, one thing I'm, I'm, I'm extremely grateful for, and I don't want to get too deep on it, but literally a week yesterday, my mum passed, right? And one thing that I'm extremely, extremely grateful for and I think about since I was young is that my mum came from Ghana, yep. went to Liberia, travelled to Nigeria, then landed in London with nothing, no clue what was going on, how things would be, be happening, and she made it work. She set a foundation that allowed me to do what I needed to do now. So... For me, my inspiration comes from the humble beginnings of the people that came before me, especially my mum. Because without, you know, without the people that came before us, none of this is possible. And um, I think when everything is clouded and you take away money, and you take away this, all the celebrities that you work with and all the big names, you have to remember that someone sacrificed so I can do what I was doing. We can all say we are self-made, but someone helped you somewhere. It sounds good <laughs> to be like I'm self-made and to some degree, yes, we are. But for the most part, there is always someone that's come before you that has a, has, has paid, paid the way for you to do what you're doing. And I think there's a term that we use that standing on the shoulders of giants. For me, my mum was that giant. Being able to say, okay, she has done this and she, she had a certain level of success in this world that has allowed me to stand on her giants and see a lot more further than she, she could. So for me, I'm just trying to build up to whatever I can and then the people after me can stand on my shoulders to see further than I could. So that's what humbles me and that just allows me to to realise, man, this thing is not about me. 
Um, I mean, just enjoying the journey as I can, but this is so much bigger than my dreams. So, yeah. Um, big condolences to you. And it's just, it's just inspirational hearing you talk about the inspiration of your mother. And I can relate so much as someone who really idolized my mom and the, the, the deep um, struggles that she had to go through. I can really relate to that. And I, and I'm very proud that you are honoring your mother in that way. And also, I'm hoping that somehow you'll be very proud to see your mother somewhere uh, in the afterlife. And he, he, she'll be very happy with the work that you're doing, making sure that hopefully you can also reach out to, to, to the community in Ghana, where you're from, impact the same people. It's been very inspirational and exciting talking to you. And I'm very humbled to have the opportunity to talk to you. Okay. Thank you for having me. Honestly, man, it's um, it's refreshing. Um, the questions that you ask, them, you know, ones that most people don't get that detail. So, um, thank you for you know asking the right questions, man, and just allowing me to express a bit more of my journey. Thank you very much. I appreciate. It. This has been the Change Africa podcast with Kenny Anna and Jonathan, and this is part of the TEDx special edition. We've been speaking to a lot of amazing people who are in the TEDx page. And today we were talking sports journalism, coming back to Africa, impacting the local community, and just being a great overall inspiration to the places that we're from. Catch us here and make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel and listen to us wherever you listen to your podcast. Thank you. Both you which are in the 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 in